As 2020 comes to an end, many of us won't be sad to see it end. Many will be hoping that a new year will bring a clean, safe, healthy slate, a hope for better things than we've seen. If that wasn't just the craziest year, well, we've had intense social unrest resulting in riots with serious injuries and massive property damage. We've had the circus that we call elections. Of course, we have COVID, a worldwide pandemic, which meant quarantines and higher than normal death tolls and life as we know it canceled. We've had businesses that shut down. We've had fires and earthquakes and mass shaming and job loss and all kinds of things that we've had to deal with this year. And we can look at it that way. But as in all things, our realities are the stories that we tell ourselves about the things going on around us. And while all of those things did happen, we also have the choice to focus on the positive things, things that came from the last year uniquely because of those challenges. More time with family, more time in nature, focus on our homes and our personal spaces. Opportunities abounded for seeing how prepared we might be for an emergency and being able to step into a space of better preparedness. There were many things that took place this year and many things that we learned from them. Hopefully, you have focused on telling positive, uplifting stories rather than ones of hopelessness and fear. Because that's what we have the power to do. We can choose one or the other. Personally, I have had my best year ever in real estate. It was a great, abundant year. And while I did miss my usual social calendar, it's been very different and had to make some mental adjustments. It's been an interesting experience to slow down without the same expectation of social interaction. Even if I was the one that was creating that expectation for myself, it was still fun to get to say no to things and have an awesome excuse <laughs> to say no. I've enjoyed the things I've gotten done in my home and on my property because of the quarantine. And you know, I've sent more cards by snail mail to connect, and I've said gratitudes every morning, and I've relied on faith rather than fear. I've tried to learn from my mistakes. Like I mentioned, my food storage may not have been all that it should have been, but after the pandemic shut down, I was able to improve it. And the podcast has continued on, inspiring me and others with the wonderful interviews and ideas that we share here. As I look back on 2020, all the podcast episodes I've shared, I notice a theme. This is what I'm getting to. <laughs> the stories that have been shared are illustrations of real people doing really hard things in difficult circumstances and coming out better and stronger on the other side of the struggle. That's what we that's what we do in this podcast. But as I was looking at the stories that we told, I realized how important 2020 was for hearing those kinds of stories. These are stories to inspire us and show us what it looks like to stand tall when the going gets really rough. And if it's been a tough year for you, fill up on these inspirational stories that show how people make their way through tough things, only to come out with massive growth on the other side. That's a message we've needed this year. So stay tuned for this week's episode, which is the best of 2020, the top five downloaded episodes. are our lives in language. Welcome to the Love Your Story podcast. I'm Lori Lee, and I'm excited for our future together of telling stories, 
evaluating our own stories, and lifting ourselves and others to greater places because of our control over our stories. This podcast is about empowerment and giving you, the listener, ideas to work with in making your stories work for you. Story power serves you best when you know how to use it. best about the best of episode is that you get little quips, reminders from the best stories and interviews. By listening to this one episode, you will walk away with brilliant insights from five other episodes. And maybe your interest will be piqued just enough to go back, hop on the internet or your favorite podcast platform and go back and listen to these episodes in full. So you can get all the insight and all the brilliance from these vulnerable and triumphant tales that each guest has shared. So let's get started. We'll jump right in. I love every episode I put together for the show, but in order to narrow it down to which were the best, I chose the five that were downloaded the most. So we'll start with number five. Do a countdown. Number five, in episode 162, I interviewed Jeff Meyer from The Mental Edge. And he talked to us about how to perform at our highest levels. We all do something. You're a parent or a lawyer, an actress, a podcaster, a soccer player, a golfer, whatever it is that you do, staying in a space of peak performance is the surest way to find success in being your best you and creating your best story. This topic is something we could all use this year as we needed and wanted to stay sharp despite working from home or learning to juggle kids schooling at home while also trying to work. I'm not surprised at this one being a big hit because I think we're all looking for those little tips and tools to stay sharp in what we're doing. So here's a clip of our discussion about how being present is so important in creating real connection and performing at our highest levels as leaders and parents. And this was just one of the tips that Jeff gave. As a coach or a leader or a boss, I can guarantee you that people know when you're present and when you're not. You can ask a question and if you're not waiting mindfully for the answer, they know it, you know? And so, and I know for me, the best part of coaching is for me to develop a mindful, a present relationship with each player. They know that when I talk to them, that I'm present with them. And that is just so important. That builds a whole team chemistry in a much fluid, liquid type way. And they know you care. You know, it's that old saying, you know, about caring. And I think that's just so important. Okay, here we are to number four, which was episode 158, where I interviewed Kristen Ulmer. And um, the topic was our relationship to fear. Now, Kristen Ulmer is a thought leader on fear and anxiety who draws from her tenure as the most fearless woman extreme skier in the world for 12 years. I bet you can guess why this episode was a hit. (laughs) I think this episode did so well because we are all trying to figure out how to navigate our fears. And in 2020, there was a lot of possible fear. So this episode was embraced. If you remember, Kristen is the author of The Art of Fear, Why Conquering Fear Won't Work, and What to Do Instead. 
She's known for radically challenging existing norms about what to do about fear and anxiety, and she is very successful in her work. So here's a clip from our conversation on the podcast about how fear needs to be acknowledged in order to be healthy. Let's start off with your story because that's what we do. How did you get started in extreme skiing? What did that look like? Well, I will say that my story is that as sexy and exciting as being like the best in the world at a sport like big mountain extreme skiing for as long as I was, I think the bigger picture story of me and the the more interesting thing about me is what I learned from it and what that has led to me to become now. Like, I feel like I've been groomed by the universe to be a fear and anxiety expert for 33 years now. And it starts, of course, when I was a teenager and I was obsessed with skiing. You know, I was just skiing with friends and going on trips and just because I wanted to hang out with them and uh, they were competing in moguls. And so I thought, well, I'll compete in moguls too. And then next thing you know, without any goal to be on the U.S. ski team for moguls, I, that's where I found myself. I'm like, all of a sudden I'm wearing the jacket and I'm they're taking the picture and I'm like, oh my gosh, what the heck happened? And that was the beginning of my ski career, just being on the U.S. ski team. So very quickly, I realized I that wasn't my platform. At the same time, I was uh, jumping off cliffs for cameras and skiing for ski movies. And uh, I realized that that was more my style. So I just started pursuing being a professional big mountain extreme skier, which at the time, you know, that didn't exist. I was the first one. I actually just got inducted into the Ski and Snowboard Hall of Fame two months ago. The downside is I watched a lot of my friends die. I had over 50 near-death experiences. I've watched dozens and dozens of friends get crippled. You know, it's very violent. You know, we call it extreme because the consequences of failure are either severe injury or death. And, uh, you know, the injury rate and the fatality rate in that sport is extremely high. What was your personal fear and anxiety level as you were doing this? Because absolutely, to ski at that level is incredible. And the stuff you were doing to ski at that level, like you say, jumping off cliffs, the the tricks, the stuff you're doing and the conditions that you're doing it, that's really intense stuff. So did you feel fear when you were doing it? Well, I was considered fearless. The media called me fearless. I was also voted the most fearless woman athlete in North America, beating women in all sports disciplines, not just skiing. And I took up pretty much anything sort of dangerous sport you can get your hands on, ice climbing, paragliding, rock climbing, flying trapeze, kiteboarding. And I believed my own hype. I felt fearless. And in there lies the transition. Because not only is being fearless impossible, but it's also undesirable. And I learned the hard way this. So what happened after about 10 years, you know, what it was is I was really good at ignoring my fear. But it turns out underneath the surface of my relative reality, fear was with every single moment of every single day of my life. And it's that way with everyone, whether you're jumping off cliffs or not. Like I was motivated by fear of being invisible, fear of not being loved. I mean, that's what motivated me to jump off all these cliffs and ski these euphoria die descents. I actually was really addicted to feeling fear. Like people call people like me adrenaline addicts, but really what we are, because beneath the adrenaline is fear, 
is I was a fear addict. And when you love feeling fear, when you merge with it, when you become intimate with it, it doesn't feel like fear. It, it feels like excitement, like neurochemically fear and excitement are exactly the same thing. So mm-hmm. I was an excitement addict. I was chasing it. It made me feel alive. And it turns out fear was like the best part of the whole experience. It's the thing that took me into those higher states of flow, zone, consciousness. We have, according to Zen tradition, 10,000 different states of mood or being, whatever you want to call it. And the analogy is 5,000 of them are considered good and 5,000 of them are considered bad. So imagine you have a house full of children and half your children you've named love, joy, gratitude. And the other half you've named like fear, anger, sadness. Despite your best intention, would you be able to treat them all the same way? No. And what we tend to do is nurture and love and show off to the world these wonderful children, the, the love, like, you know, we have gratitude practice, we have forgiveness practice, we choose love over fear, like all these things that we do to nurture these wonderful children. And what do we do with these bad children, these negative children? Well, we resist them. And resistance is specifically taught in our culture by doctors, by psychologists, by self-help gurus. And resistance comes in many forms. You know, we ignore them like I did, or we try to rationalize them away. We get into our heads dealing with our emotions intellectually rather than emotionally. We try to breathe them away. We try to replace them with the positive spiritual bypassing, like anything we can do to get rid of them, get rid of them, get rid of them. And win the war against them, we try to conquer and overcome them. We lock them in the basement, we throw away the key. Tune in to the full episode if you would like to learn why locking away these emotional children in the basement is not the best way to deal with it. Navigating our fear, especially with so much of it that came up in 2020, is an important thing to learn. Okay, number three was episode 157. It was our 2020 New Year's episode, which was titled, What If Nothing Is Wrong With You? Now, I had mixed emotions about this episode being so popular because on the one hand, I was thrilled that people were connecting with the show and that I hit a spot people often needed to hear. I love that. On the other hand, I felt sad that so many of us truly think that there are things wrong with us. So much so that an episode that shared the new and crazy idea that we might not be broken was something people clamored to. But I have to admit that I love this idea because of the spaces I feel broken in. It's just a universal space that we all traverse. And that's that's what made it so popular is that we all want to figure out how to fully embrace our beauty, to love ourselves, to maybe hear, hey, you're not broken, you're okay the way that you are. Above all, I hope that the ideas in this episode helped people accept themselves. This episode on self-love and self-acceptance and the novel idea that we're acceptable here and now just as we are, in fact, more than acceptable. We are beloved and filled with magic. This was one of the year's favorites, and I love it. Here is a clip from that episode. Since loving ourselves creates the foundation for loving our story, This topic is ideal for the Love Your Story podcast. So I wanted to pose the question to you, what if there is nothing wrong with you? I first heard this statement from Susan Hankel's TED Talk, part of the 
How to Be a Better Human series. So I want to start there. Susan Hankels has worked as a psychotherapist for more than 45 years. That means that she has spent decades smiling and nodding and handing over tissues at the appropriate moment and decades of hearing people tell her about all the things that they think are wrong with themselves, all the things that need to be fixed. Well, I love her story because she says, one day as I was listening to a patient talk and talk about that whole list of what was wrong with her, she says, right in the middle of this list, I thought, what? You know, there's actually nothing wrong with her. From that moment, she realized there is a surprising power to be found in prompting people to ask themselves, What if there's nothing wrong with me? She says, this doesn't mean that we're perfect. For instance, most of us could stand to eat a little better and sit up straighter and be a little nicer here and there. But we can stop spending so much time dwelling on our personal shortcomings and imagining how our life will be better once we finally, finally vanquish everything that's wrong with us. Quote, we create this whole list of what we think is wrong and then create an entire life around it. Unquote. In fact, the attributes we think of as problems can be our strengths. Now, Hankel tells this story in her TED Talk that is called, What If There's Nothing Wrong With You? And it's all about building the skill of acceptance. Hankel says this question is about pressing pause on your inner critic and making, quote, a choice to let go of all the ways you've made yourself wrong, unquote. So let's listen to her actually tell a little bit of this story herself. I had the fortune of meeting the most fabulous um, director of documentaries. And he said to me, when you're not watching movies, what are you doing? So I said, well, I'm writing a book. It's called, What If There's Nothing Wrong With You? (laughs) And he looked at me and he said, I can tell you right now eight things that are wrong with me. So I said, name one. And he said, very defiantly and certainly, I have oppositional defiant disorder. (laughs) I'm like, (laughs) like I couldn't tell, right? (laughs) So I said to him, what's wrong with that? He said, well, I, um, I would always defy my parents and teachers. Well, what's wrong with that? I wouldn't comply with any of the rules at school, and I didn't do anything I was told to do at home. What's wrong with that? He said, well, I was always in a bad temper. I argued with my parents all the time. I never had any friends, and I loved being alone. I said, well, what's wrong with that? (laughs) And we had several interactions like that. And at some point during the interactions, he said to me, hmm, you know, actually, I really like being alone. And I was able to write stories, write film scripts in my head, Come to think of it, I think oppositional defiant disorder has me be the great film director that I am. He said, I actually like not having a right or wrong diagnosis about this. Just accepting it is what it is. (laughs) The next day, he found me. He came up to me and he said, I slept through the night for the first time in years not having to make myself wrong, decide what I should be doing and shouldn't be doing. He said, 
you know, I'm going to look at those seven other things that I was so sure were wrong with me. (sighs) There's a lot more where that came from in the whole episode. You can find it online at loveyourstorypodcast.com. Okay, we are moving on to number two, episode 164. This was my interview with Tyson Steele about his 23-day Alaskan survival wilderness story in the lowlands south of Denali National Park. Remember that one? It was in below freezing temperatures. After his home burned down, he had more than three weeks in like 15-degree temperatures. The fire that burned his house down also killed his best friend, a lab who had been with him through thick and thin. And then he spent that next three weeks alone in the wilderness trying to survive. And he comes on the show and shares that story just from the gut. So tell me then about, let's jump ahead to your home and the experience that you had recently. I saw it on TV. I saw it on the internet. There's a picture of you with a big SOS in the snow, waving your arms, walking out from the burnt pile of rubble that had been your home and the helicopter blades coming down to rescue you after, was it, I said 21 days earlier. Was that correct? Or was it 23? Uh, 23 days. Yeah. 23 days. Take us there. The fire started late one night, one or two in the morning, when I overloaded the wood stove with a piece of cardboard. I tried to just start it up quickly. I was cold. It was negative 15. I had let the coals die down. I planned to just start a fire real quick and go back to sleep. And when I was going back, starting to drift off back to sleep, uh, fire started dripping from the ceiling above me, like uh, plastic drips of fire. The Vietnam vet who lived there previously, he had built his cabin with a lot of tarps and plastic. He used one by fours. And I knew it was a fire hazard, but I figured since he'd lived there for so long, I'd be able to use that as a base camp to start something new. How long had you been living there at this point? Three months. Two full years in Alaska. I was a winter caretaker last year, and then I worked at a fishing lodge for the summer. And then September to December 16th uh, was when the fire started. So about three months. Okay. So what happened is a cardboard spark went up the chimney and landed on a portion of the roof that had the plastic and it ignited. I found that out later when I went outside to grab some snow to maybe put it out that the whole roof was on fire. And at that point, I only really had seconds to react because it had so much plastic. It was spreading really fast, spreading almost like gasoline. And there were two thoughts that came to my mind. I need survival gear and I need to get my dog out of there. So I rush back inside and I just throw a whole bunch of things on the bed, anything within arm's reach. There's flames that are already starting to circle around me and the roof is collapsing. My dog is huddling up in a corner trying to get away from it all. And he's a 110-pound chocolate lab. I can't really move him off. But I I finally just grab a leg and I pull him. And he 
since there's so many flames around so suddenly, all I saw that he was that he left my sight of vision. He was on, on the ground. And I figured he had run at that point. I hoisted all the gear around my shoulder. It was like sleeping bags and jackets and stuff like that. I was only in my long johns. I had no socks. I put on some boots real quick. And then I, I headed out. And then the third thought came to me, I need to get my rifle. So I have some protection against wolves and moose. And I go around to the front side of the house where there's not as many flames and grab the rifle. And that's when I realize my dog is still inside and that he is engulfed in flames at this point. And this is something I've not told the media because it's, uh, it's so fresh, but what I had to do was an, was an old yeller scenario where I had the rifle and I had the bullets and I was just hoping that I could put him out of, out of his misery. And I fired some shots. I could not see where he was. I just anticipated where he might be and it, it was to no avail. I, all four bullets missed. And then the roof started collapsing, black smoke filling my lungs, and I had to leave. And all I could really do at that point was just scream. There was no time to cry, or and I don't even know how to describe the scream. It was just release. It was an agonizing, I, all I could do was scream. I was shocked at that point. My communication devices had burned up my phone. I had a Garmin InReach, which is an SOS communicator. I have a button. All I have to do is press that button to get help. It burned up and my VHF Marine radio, which can get emergency frequencies that burned up. So I had a good plan, but I didn't think of the fact that I put it all in the same charging station. So I sat down in the snow for a while and I just, I was shocked. I don't know how long I just, I had to stay warm. It was negative 15 degrees outside. So I had to stay close to the fire. I've only got my long johns on. And then it occurred to me after a moment, I have to save my food. All my food is burning. All the Crisco and oils are contributing to the flames. The old man had built his floors with rubber, like rubber mats. And so when rubber ignites, it's super hot. It's very, very hot. And it was burning and propane tanks were going off. I had 500 rounds of bullets and they were all going off all at once. And it's all next to the food. This interview took place very soon after the tragedy, and Tyson had just returned to the States from Alaska after his rescue. He hadn't had time to process everything yet, and he was still in the beginning phases of sorting through what happened, so we got a very raw story from him. His story is tragic and touching and unnerving all at once. The whole episode is also available on loveyourstorypodcast.com or any of the any of your podcast platforms. But I wanted to give you an update. Tyson has since returned to his homestead up in Alaska to rebuild it. And as you listen to the whole episode, this whole episode, episode 164, you will learn more about what that homestead is like and just what a big undertaking that's going to be for him. Okay, let's do number one, drum roll, our number one most downloaded episode for 2020 was episode 160, my interview with Joe Marie Taylor and how being held hostage in Kuwait during the Iraqi invasion in 1990 
challenged the entire way she thought about life. There are moments in our lives that change us, become defining moments because they challenge what we thought we knew and make us think about things differently. On August 2nd, 1990 at 2 a.m. local time, Iraq launched an invasion of Kuwait with four elite Iraqi Republican Guard divisions and Iraqi Army Special Forces. And the main thrust was conducted by the commandos deployed by helicopters and boats to attack Kuwait City, while the other divisions seized the airports and the two air bases. Well, Kuwait didn't stand for long, and the Iraqi invasion quickly turned into a takeover. My guest today is Jo Marie Taylor. She's an American who was visiting Kuwait with her Kuwaiti husband, and she found herself in a hostage situation in this country, hiding and navigating the fear and the daily threat of death, watching the destruction and the murder and the mayhem of the invasion. And all of this challenged the way she thought about life. So stay tuned for her story as she shares her hostage experience and the change it created in her life story moving forward. Joe's story is an opening into our own considerations about how our traumatic experience shape and change us and how that's part of the messy, beautiful process we call life. Driving through the streets, that was the worst part. When I talk about the thing that was so challenging with the invasion is there were such brutal atrocities that um, had happened. For example, like streets were lined. They had light poles, the kind that kind of curve over the street. And those light poles were just, each one had a body hanging from it. So the streets were just lined with bodies that had been hung. And we had heard, you know, so many things about how people were being taken and just brutal things happening to neighbors and other family members. And there were checkpoints set up everywhere. So driving through the streets of Kuwait, were, it was so odd because any vehicle that was on the street by this time had been stripped of all the tires, the engine, the seats, everything that they could take was stripped from that. And just all you had left was like the carcass of the car. And my understanding is because Iraq had been through such a long war with Iran, they didn't have these things. These things were in shortage. And so I guess they maybe were not able to start the cars. So basically they just stripped everything. So there were not just like the horrific images of people hanging, but also there was like carcasses of the cars. Buildings had big holes blown out in them. It really was an apocalyptic type of scene. Oh, just sounds macabre. Yeah, very. So was this what challenged your past belief system, seeing this, being exposed to it? Or was it the fear or was it all of it together? What was your belief system before and what did that transition into? You know, it probably was everything, all of it together, because every moment, if I wasn't afraid for my life, I was afraid of everyone around me, you know, whoever was around me, I was afraid for their life. So that was huge. That was a big part of it. That was something that we were all just on survival mode and 
my belief going into it, it was really funny because I was, you know, raised Christian. And initially when I first moved there, I, I had this thing in the back of my head, this thought, a belief that if I didn't convert my husband and his family, you know, they may not have a chance of going to heaven. I mean, this was just my limited naive belief at the time. But through this experience, my eyes opened to a much more broad sense of what love's all about, what God's all about, what even religion's all about. You know, that sometimes we put each other in boxes that are just that, but ultimately we're all the same and we're all connected. And if we can kind of see that, that changes everything because I guarantee you know, if one of them didn't get into heaven, there's no way I have a chance. <laughs> That's such a beautiful and important insight. I think that the humanness of all of us and how we're all okay and how despite the different belief systems, in my verbiage, I would say we're all children of God and we're all loved by God, no matter which you know, cultures we're raised in or belief systems that we foster. And we all move toward light or toward darkness through our agency, through our own choices. But that light is a very broad thing. Absolutely. I totally agree. It led me to see things in a much less limited, more universal type of light. And actually, even my old paradigms that I had, they no longer served me because reality as I knew it had changed completely. I love that this is our number one show because it's really the number one message for 2020. If there was one message that would help and bless us all through that list of things that went wrong, this message is the one that smooths them all over. We need to accept one another. We need to open our minds and our hearts. We need to allow for different ways of thinking and still give personal respect to another's right to believe as they do. The example shown in her story in the full episode, if you go back and listen to it, of people risking their lives to help one another in a really rough time and situation shows the human spirit at its most valiant and people needed to hear that story. Our number one download. May we take this beautiful lesson with us into 2021 and let's see what kind of magic we can make in the coming year with these words of wisdom. A special thank you to all of you, all of my loyal listeners and the interviewees on the show who make this a place of sharing and learning and growth. Blessings upon all of you as we transition into the new year. And as we close up 2020, I sincerely hope that you got your copy of Life, Living Intentional and Fearless Every Day. It is the tool that I have provided and spent a lot of time promoting in this past year, but that I created and provided for all of the seekers, all of my listeners, so that they have a program they can follow to live more connected and with greater possibility, those 21 Life Connection Challenges that are in that book. And if you haven't, 
gotten your copy yet, you can get it on Amazon. Type in my name, Lori Lee, and Life in capital letters. You should be able to pull it up that way. But this will be a great program to start out the new year if you hadn't, haven't already done it. And if you have, you know what? Start it again. Start it with family, with friends, with book groups, with your teen groups, whatever it is, do the 21 challenges together and create more of that connection and possibility and self-care that is promised in that book. We could all use more of that. (laughs) Support the podcast, get yourself a copy and support yourself by working and focusing on these easy to follow programs that, like I said, I've created as tools to help you. Thank you again for a great year. Have a wonderful holiday and I will see you in 2021.